This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. What I would tell people, and what I hope if they are not lovers of James Baldwin already, is that James Baldwin is one of those voices who can be transformative. If we listen to him, if we're willing to accept the challenges that he poses, and they are big challenges, then we can be changed. And the job of the great artist, the job of the prophet is to say, here's what I see. Here's what it means to be fully human. Here's what it means to to live and to love justice. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Greg Garrett. He is, according to BBC Radio, one of America's essential voices on religion and culture. His work has been featured in media ranging from National Public Radio and the New Statesman to Fox News and the National Review. From Christianity Today and the Christian Century to Playboy and Men's Health. Professor Garrett is the co-founder and co-curator of the Long Way Film Festival at Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., exploring racism and reconciliation through the lens of Hollywood film, and also the founder of Seen and Unseen, a similar program on race and film at Trinity Church Wall Street. He is professor of English at Baylor University. Dr. Garrett has been a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Center for Religion and Culture and serves each summer as theologian in residence at American Cathedral in Paris. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. Professor Greg Garrett, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. It's such a joy to talk to you today. I want to begin our conversation in a bit of an odd place. So we're talking about James Baldwin, and those that know the biography of James Baldwin will know that he spent significant portions of his life in Paris. And so there's one moment in your book where he is in Paris, he is staying in a hotel, and the maid has refused to change his sheets. And so another friend of his who has left another hotel, as that other friend left the hotel, that friend grabbed the sheet off of his bed and brought it to Baldwin, and Baldwin put this fresh sheet on his bed to have a clean sheet. And then soon after this, the police arrive. Why don't you begin to tell us what happens next? Well, this is one of the stories that Baldwin tells in the very early book, Notes of a Native Son. And it is about his really terrifying encounter with the gendarmes in France. 
And he had his share of encounters with the police in Harlem and in Manhattan uh, proper. But like a lot of Americans, particularly um, uh, Americans who are people of color, they, they came to France with the expectation that they would be free of that kind of uh, harassment uh, simply due to their status as American citizens. And so Baldwin found himself uh, thrown into jail and put on trial for theft, uh, which was the theft of these uh, bedsheets. And on the surface, it sounds ridiculous, but as he describes, it is this very sort of Kafka-esque and very scary episode in his life where he understood that what it was like to be in jail or in prison, to be without control over your person, and very hard to hold on to hope. And in, in Baldwin's case, he was fortunate enough that one of the, the people who was uh, jailed with him was released and had offered to reach out to people on the outside for any of the people uh, in the cell. And Baldwin had worked as a clerk for an American attorney in Paris who was willing to uh, stand up for him, offer a character witness, try and get him out. But it's a really important moment in Baldwin's life because it helps him understand first just what basic injustice looks like. All, all of our listeners who have seen or, or heard Les Miserables, where the main character is sent to prison for stealing a loaf of bread, can, can understand that even for a tiny crime like this, Baldwin was facing a serious and very scary time in jail. And, and I think it, it sets the table for him to not only understand the injustice of our legal system, but what it feels like to be a person who's powerless and, and to identify and actually serve as a witness for all those that he comes to think about and work with and collaborate with as an activist back in the States. What I really like about this story and why I think it was a good place to start to introduce to our listeners the person and the character of James Baldwin, whom you were writing about in your book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, is because it presents to us this simple conflict that is at the heart of so much of Baldwin's works and at the heart of Baldwin's life. He simply wanted a clean place to sleep. But the system saw him not as a person who was trying to get that very basic need that we all have met, but rather saw him as someone who was a criminal. And in fact, in, in, later in that same chapter on justice, you talk about the, the tendency for places like the criminal justice system to invent entire narratives about a person based on the filter of the color of their skin. And so I, I would invite you to begin to tell us about James Baldwin by telling us about this friction between the meeting of the basic human need to be clean, to be fed, to be sheltered, to be loved, and systems that want to identify us as criminals and those who deserve to be put in cages. Well, early on in The Fire Next Time, uh, which uh, 2023 is the 60th anniversary of the publication of The Fire Next Time, it was at this time, uh, as you and I are talking today, uh, 60 years ago, the number one book in America on the New York Times bestseller list. And in the opening essay of that book, which I would hold up with the best seven pages of prose written by any American writer, uh, My Dungeon Shook, which is a letter to his nephew, James. James talks about what it was like to grow up in Harlem and what he knows that his nephew is experiencing growing up in Harlem. And he says, you and I both know that there are these very basic human needs. We need to eat. We need to have a roof over our heads. We need to feel safe. And, and those things are all complicated. 
by the color of our skin. And, and he tells his nephew, James, this innocent nation placed us in this ghetto, placed you in this ghetto where it expected you to perish. And so I think one of the contrasts that you bring out and one of the things that he experienced and why he had gone to Paris in the first place is that Richard Wright, who was a, a mentor uh, to Baldwin and uh, another great American writer who found a home in Paris, had, had intimated that Paris was a place where those issues were no longer extant, right? I, I'm not treated like a black man, is essentially what Richard Wright had said to Baldwin. And so this episode was, it was a sort of slap in the face or a splash of cold water. It was this recognition that, as you said, there will always be systems who want to tell stories about people based on their perceived identities. and. So one of the things that Baldwin pushes back against, and I write about this a lot in the last chapter of the book on identity, is that someday, God willing, we will arrive at this place where those perceived identities no longer matter, where who we are, what we look like, who we love, how we pray, how we vote, will not be the things that people use to try and define us, and that we'll simply be seen as, as fellow children of God. As, as people meeting at the welcome table, all of whom are equal and equally loved. And so when we talk about Baldwin today, we're, we're going to find a bunch of intertwined elements. Because what I discovered in writing this book is I can talk about Baldwin and religion or authentic faith. I can talk about Baldwin and what it means to be authentically human or to represent that in art. And, and all of those things are they're integrated in him as they are in all of us. The things that we think about faith and the things we think about politics and the things that we think about culture all inter, uh, interweave and overlap each other. And that's one of the reasons that I love talking about Baldwin so much, because it does feel to me like he has so much to say. And, and not just to people like his nephew, for example, who had that sort of shared identity in Harlem where it's, it's difficult to find a safe place to sleep or to walk or to eat or to be, um, but also to somebody like me, you know, who is, you are looking at me now because we are doing this Zoom call via video. I am white, middle-class, straight, Christian. There, there are a whole lot of elements of my, of my identity and of my history that don't correspond with Baldwin's. But first, he is an amazing witness for those who do share aspects of his identity. And second, as I talk about in the, the chapter on art and story, there's this very powerful sense that Baldwin has that most great artists have that we, we are all so similar under the skin that uh, great art not only talks about the ways that we're different, but identifies the ways that we're the same and helps us bond in terms of our common humanity. I wonder if you could give us a brief biographical sketch of Baldwin, and I'm going to ask you to focus it on this particularly. When we look at the sweep of the American civil rights movement, we see figures like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers. And in reading your book, it is clear that Baldwin is not simply a contemporary of these figures, but rather Baldwin is a confidant and in some ways a prophet to some of these figures. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how he has interfaced with that part of American history in his life, and also why when we're talking about King or Malcolm X or Medgar Evers, so often Baldwin is unmentioned in those moments. 
Before I lean into that, let me just, as we're trying to describe Baldwin and who Baldwin is, one of the things that I want to say is we're going to talk now about his life as an activist. But one of the reasons that I am so drawn to him is that he is unique. There is not another figure like him in American history. This person who is a great author in a variety of genres, a great thinker, a great theologian, even though he, he constantly says, well, I'm not a churchgoer, don't think of me in that way. And then this life of the activist, which is a central part. And again, we were talking about the overlapping, how all of these things fit together. We were talking about The Fire Next Time, the most important book on race, uh, maybe of the 20th century. And in the process of his writing and speaking, he had the chance to be a part of uh, different pieces of the civil rights movement. And there was a part of him, as I think there probably is a part with a lot of writers who say, I can just do my work as a writer and, and step back. So there, there's a part of me, for example, when I write about race in America, when I write about white supremacy or white Christian nationalism, I think, well, I met my deadline and I have done my work. And it has been clear to me as it was very clear to Baldwin, that is not enough. And so what Baldwin talked about uh, explicitly in a variety of ways was this idea that he was a sort of prophet. And in fact, at one point, he made it very explicit. He, he said he saw himself as a sort of Jeremiah calling out in the streets to this immoral culture that had its values skewed and did not understand what it is that God requires of human beings. And, and so in the context of being a witness, he was writing and he was speaking and doing public appearances and marching. And because of his growing visibility as an artist and other people who were in this boat would be Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, some of the other writers and musicians of the era, he had the chance to get to know Malcolm X and Dr. King and Medgar Evers and to grow to love them and to learn from them, but also to, in some ways, teach them. So when I was doing the archival research for the book, I was working in the uh, Harry Ransom Humanities Center here in Austin and the uh, collection of his one-time agent and literary manager. And I ran across, I had not expected this, which is the great joy of archival research. It's, I, I am on a discovery mission. There was a letter from Martin Luther King's lawyer to Baldwin's agent. And this letter said, uh, Dr. King wanted me to tell you to tell Baldwin that he believes that uh, the fire next time is perhaps the most important thing written on race ever. And uh, there was a hue and cry that went up when the book came out, that it was in some way unchristian. And King's lawyer said, Dr. King wants James to know that he does not think of it in that way at all. In fact, quite the contrary. And so there was this sense of these great figures balancing off each other and inspiring each other and loving each other. And perhaps my favorite of Baldwin's books is No Name in the Street, which is, I think, maybe the closest to straight-up memoir that he does. And it's his memoir of the civil rights era. And the most haunting part of it for me is that he responds to each of those three big deaths, so Dr. King, Malcolm X, and, and Medgar, and how each of those took a toll on him. There's a line when he talks about finding out about Dr. King and being at the funeral. And he said, I was afraid to weep because I was afraid that if I began, I would never be able to stop. 
And so one of the things that I hope comes across in the book is that in addition to being this great essayist, fiction writer, dramatic writer, speaker, preacher, in the letter he wrote to Desmond Tutu toward the end of his life, the open letter, he said, people have told me that I never stopped being a preacher and I believe that they're right. So we have all of those sort of elements of who Baldwin is, but there's also this aspect of him believing that he had to show up and be a witness and sometimes put himself in harm's way, including some of these trips to the American South, where he tried to understand what was going on down there. And Harlem was bad enough, but at least he knew the rules. And in traditional hero's journey structure, he leaves the place that he knows, terrible as it might be, to go to a place that he doesn't know where he doesn't understand the rules and he doesn't understand how to live. And he has to go in based almost entirely on pluck and bravery. It's just, I, I'm going to go and I'm going to witness and I'm going to write about this and please God, let me survive it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Greg Garrett. He is, according to BBC Radio, one of America's essential voices on religion and culture. His work has been featured in a wide range of publications. He is a professor of English at Baylor University and has been a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Center for Religion and Culture, and he serves each summer as theologian in residence at American Cathedral in Paris. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Greg Garrett. The BBC has called him one of America's essential voices on religion and culture. He has been published in numerous publications from across the political spectrum. He is a professor of English at Baylor University, a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Center for Religion and Culture, and each summer he serves as theologian in residence at American Cathedral in Paris. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. Well, Professor Garrett, a couple of times now I have read the title of your book, and the subtitle of your book is What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. And what I was struck by, and you come back to this repeatedly in your book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, is this moment in fiction when James Baldwin is writing characters, and the the way that you analyze the central conceit of these stories, particularly these early stories, is it's not that the character was homosexual and was loving as a homosexual, but rather that the character had failed to simply love boldly enough and thoroughly enough 
to help the other person to feel loved. And I would just love to, to dig into this with you. Tell us about this insight from James Baldwin. It's not about who you love or the type of love, but the depth of love that really is the question here. Tell us about that. So in several of the chapters, and of course, to a great extent in the chapter on identity, because he was often asked about sexual identity and was a, an icon to the LGBTQ community because he was one of the first out gay authors who wrote a major book that at least revolved around sexuality. But in these interviews, it was very clear that he, he talked about going the way that your heart beats. And a way that I've always heard it said is you love who you love. But for him, the biggest sin in life was not to love deeply enough. And, and I think that like a great writer, a great preacher, often we are preaching to ourselves. I know that there were many times in his life that he was lonely, many times in which he was not involved deeply in a relationship. He did have a great love of his life. But I think that one of the things that I carry away from Baldwin that is most powerful and most important to me is to have that courage to love deeply. And I think one of the reasons that I resonate so powerfully with Baldwin, the writer and the thinker, is that in my own life as a fiction writer, I, I tend to write about these lost characters who are afraid to love enough. And so what Baldwin says is the main character in Giovanni's room, the problem in his life is not that he loves a man, but that he doesn't love him enough. And in another country, there is this really heartbreaking moment where this really beautiful character early on commits suicide. And one of his dearest friends wonders, could I have done more? Could I have loved him better? And there's a sexual tension to it. Where he says, could, you know, when we lay together alone, could I just have reached across and let him know he was not alone? And I think particularly in our culture where we are so divided and so isolated, I looked at my girls on social media and I look at the effect that the pandemic has had on them and on us. And one of the reasons I think Baldwin is so important in this present moment is that he can offer this remedy to us this remedy, connection, uh, courage, and just sacrificial love. Be willing to do the hard work of love, even if it costs you, because it will. And he knew that from experience. And he can, if you will, preach to us today that this is the thing that will save us. Well, and this brings us to Baldwin, the fiction writer, and something that you observe about his craft of fiction that I think speaks to this larger universal question of loving and being loved. One of the things that you note is that Baldwin says the task of the writer, the fiction writer, is to create characters that are human, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but as I understood it, create as human a character as you can with other human characters and then set them free to interact with all of their fears, with all of their doubts, with all of their hopes, but to create human characters and to set them free. And I think that this can tell us something about the way that Baldwin moved politically, but I want to stay here, first of all, with fiction. Do I have correctly your analysis, or would you characterize what Baldwin was doing on the page in a different way than I've paraphrased it just now? I think that's exactly what he would say, because he did say that. So when we look at what Baldwin has to say about art and literature early in my book, 
part of what I'm doing is trying to set the stage for this understanding of how he understands humanity. So when he says that the job of the artist, the job of the writer is to allow people their full humanity, one of his most important early essays was the essay that he wrote about protest novel. And he looped Uncle Tom and he looped Native Son into that. And many people were offended by Richard Wright's being included in that company. But his point very simply was, if your characters are simply chess pieces on a board that you're moving around for your own purposes, they don't represent humanity. And when you're writing about real human beings, when you're creating real characters, you do have to give them that freedom, as you said, to live, to love, to sin, to fail. Many of Baldwin's most compelling characters fail miserably at the task of being human. Some of them recover from it and do better because that's another of the teachings that Baldwin has for us. We can always do better. But he says it's, it's not realistic to set somebody up either as a paragon, as Uncle Tom is represented, or as a, a deviant villain, as Bigger Thomas is represented. Either of those is, is simplifying, either of those denies the full humanity of the races or the identities that are represented. And so one of the things that I love most about Baldwin and that I think I've learned as a fiction writer is that idea of find out why these people are broken, what they have to overcome, turn them loose and see what happens. And like I said, some of them will fail miserably. And that's tragic. And some of them will overcome. And, and that's the wondrous thing about Baldwin's fiction. If Beale Street could talk, which I think except maybe for its very ending is like a tremendously good novel, is full of vital characters. They're imperfect. They're struggling. They're doing the best they can. But, you know, what Baldwin does is he shows us this young couple who are loving each other and these families that are loving them against all the odds. And what I love about that is Baldwin's recognition that hard as this life can be, and, and particularly hard for people who have a certain identity and a certain set of social circumstances that they're a part of, there are still all of these possibilities for grace and joy in this life. And one of the most important messages that I've been able to receive from Baldwin, teaching sort of life-giving kind of thing, is this possibility of joy, this possibility of hope, and the primacy of love that things become possible when you love and are loved deeply. Well, and I think I want to stay with this notion of character making because it, it, it opens up to us now some of the political aspects of what Baldwin thought the task of the human generally would be. And as you make very plain in your book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, once we have loosed ourselves from the definitions that are imposed upon us, by a society that is gratuitously violent or gratuitously offensive to our being. And I love that word gratuitously in there that Baldwin uses. We are then left with the task of beginning to define ourselves, a kind of almost Kierkegaardian existential moment. And I wonder, now that we're moving from the character on the page to Baldwin taking this and saying we must also make ourselves as fully realized characters, I wonder if you can begin to walk us through that movement and how Baldwin thought about that aspect of being human. For him, this problem was tied up with American history. 
because as much as he wanted to escape from American history, he discovered that he couldn't. There's that wonderful scene early in uh, the great documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, where he sees the picture of one of the uh, Little Rock Nine, this tall, beautiful black girl being yelled at and spit upon by white students and, and white supremacists. And the voiceover in Samuel Jackson's wondrous voice is, I knew that I could no longer remain in Paris, that I would have to return and add my voice and my presence and my witness to this. We were asking too much of these children to do this work. And, and so when I think about what Baldwin asks us to do politically, it is tied to the very real fact of American slaveholding and the set of racial myths that have been set up by people who look like you and me in order to create a hierarchy that preserves us at the top. And one of the great generosities, one of the graces that Baldwin offers, and it's something that he tells his nephew in The Fire Next Time. And he uses the word innocent a lot in that first essay, the first seven pages of that book. And there's some anger and some irony in the way that he uses it. But he's also recognizing that for many Americans, they are as trapped, many white Americans are as trapped in this history as the people directly affected by it every day because of racism. And so what I think he would say about what it means to live into our full humanity, particularly as Americans, is that we have to tell the truth about who we are and where we came from. We can't be innocent or ignorant, particularly people who look like you and me, because as long as we continue in that fashion, then we continue to create the reality that white Christian nationalism is leaning into in this moment, where we're going to obscure our history or erase our history so that we don't have to think about it because it's offensive to us. And I, I love those state legislatures that are passing bills preventing students from being offended. That to me is the heart of great pedagogy. If I have not offended you, if this subject matter has not offended you, then you don't have a chance to grow and change. You can just sit comfortably in whatever chair you occupy. So I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this because it is so central to what Baldwin believed about human destiny in America and what it means to be a true American, the, the destiny that he was hoping for, was not just this welcome table, not just this new Jerusalem that he talked about, but he says in a number of places that America is the place where it is possible not necessarily probable, but possible. We can move to this place where we acknowledge where we came from and for people who look like me, repent of it and try to repair it. And the final advice that he gives to his nephew is simply this. I know everything they've done to you because I know everything they've done to me. And yet we have to continue to love because the alternative is too horrible. The alternative damages us. Our hatred, our desire to do what they have done to us damages us. And there's certainly a moral cost of racism to people who look like me. But his awareness, and he talks about this in the fire next time, because his nation of Islam is doing the same thing that white people are doing. There's just, it's flipped. And whoever debases another, he says, debases himself.
And this really picks up on, and you, you note this in your book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, a criticism that is levied against a work like The Fire Next Time is his refusal to see violence as an option against the oppressive systems in America. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and the, the friction between Baldwin and some other civil rights leaders who wanted to see, basically to use Malcolm X's terms, by any means necessary, the overthrow of this oppressive system. And of course, when we talk about Malcolm X, we always have to say, are we talking about 1962 Malcolm X or 1965 Malcolm X? Because I think that Baldwin is right. Having read Malcolm X and listened to his speeches and paid attention to him, I believe he was in a different space in the end of his life than he was during the time when he was the primary representative of the nation of Islam. I think he was much closer to Dr. King toward the end of his life. But the, the tension that Baldwin felt and what actually led to his marginalization in the biography that you and I have talked about, you know, who was Baldwin? The 1960s are his prime period where everybody's paying attention to him. And then we get to 1968 and the, the cumulative weight of assassination and a failure. And um, plenty of people saying that by any means necessary, we've got to resist. We've got to save our lives. We've got to fight. And Baldwin never leaned in that direction. And it, it encouraged people from the Black Panther movement and uh, later leaders just to say, Baldwin is irrelevant. Uh, some of him called him an old Uncle Tom. Uh, others just said, he's not speaking into the reality that we occupy. And he was well aware of that anger. He was well aware of that resentment. You can feel it in his fiction and in his nonfiction. But he stuck with that. He clung to that even to the end of his life. And there's a work that he wrote toward the end of his life. It's not his greatest work by any means. It's published as The Evidence of Things Not Seen. It was a, an essay that he had written for Playboy about the Atlanta child murders. And it's a little bit unfocused and it's very angry. And that whole situation, there have been recent documentaries that suggest that great injustice was done in the cases that connected with the, the Atlanta child murders. And you might imagine that Baldwin is just going to leave it there. It's like we live in an unjust society and this is there is no hope. And even at the end of this work, one of the last things that he wrote, one of the last major works that he wrote, he comes back to that primacy of love. And I don't know whether it's hope or faith. It's probably both. In my own life, there are days that I'm operating more on hope and faith than I am on the reality I'm, I'm observing. But he says toward the end of this book that he had never forgotten what he learned in the church he grew up in and ultimately left, that we were called to love everyone. And he says, whoever else may not have believed this I did. And I understand that desire for violence and for revenge. I have walked alongside many friends who have suffered, who have lost people that they loved, who have dealt with the daily reality of sending a child out and not knowing if he or she will come back alive. I can't claim to have lived that reality, but I've seen it and I'm angered by it. And theologically speaking, emotionally speaking, I have to come down where Baldwin teaches us because there is so much damage in that other place. When I go to that dark side of myself, it is so bad for me, 
forget who else might be harmed by it or how I might advance some cause, but it is so bad for me. And so if we're thinking that Baldwin is this prophet of humanity, what's best for us? What is our best destiny? What is the, the thing that we can aspire to? What in my tradition, I would say, what has God called us to? It is that love in the face of darkness, of hatred, of repression and injustice. And I stand with him and I stand with Dr. King, who said love is the most powerful force in the universe. We minimize love by turning it into a Hallmark gift card. But if I can love someone who doesn't love me, someone who hates me, I am better for it. And I have to believe that some change gets made in the moral universe when that happens. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Greg Garrett. According to BBC Radio, he is one of America's essential voices on religion and culture. He's widely published across the political spectrum, and he is a professor of English at Baylor University, a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Center for Religion and Culture, and he serves each summer as theologian in residence at American Cathedral in Paris. We're speaking today about his recent book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Greg Garrett. He is, according to BBC Radio, one of America's essential voices on religion and culture. He's widely published in periodicals across the political spectrum. He's professor of English at Baylor University and has also been a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Center for Religion and Culture, and he serves each summer as theologian in residence at the American Cathedral in Paris. We're speaking today about his recent book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. Well, in our last segment, we began to talk about the call that Baldwin says to throw off the shackles of the definitions that an oppressive culture has given you and to begin to shape your own identity. And I want to stay there for a moment because there's something that, that you note towards the end of your book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, that really hit me, and I wasn't sure what to do with it. Uh, you, you quote James Baldwin saying, when I'm fully known in my humanity, I will no longer be known as a gay man. And I, I began to think about the, the scholars of disability that I have read and the, the scholars of liberation theology who talk about the importance of context and particularity. And it seems as if in Baldwin's move to a more universal humanity, he's moving away from the particularities that make us who we are. And so I'd really like to invite you to think with me about that. What is Baldwin saying about when we actually reach that welcome table? What will the human being look like? And are you comfortable with how he envisions that? Good. And, and I love the way that you've talked about particularity and context. Because uh, I, I, too, am drawn to uh, liberation theologians. Um, some of the people that I've worked with closely over the last couple of years, there's a, a great liberation theologian at Oxford, uh, Anthony Reddy, and uh, the great uh, American liberation theologian, Kelly Brown Douglas. I've done a ton of, of programs with them, talked with them, learned from them. 
And I teach them often in classes at Baylor and particularly in grad classes. And in those grad classes, those students tend to be very white and I'm very white, but white, Christian, middle class, often a little bit more conservative religiously than I am. And they have a hard time leaning into the particularity of that theology because it doesn't represent their particularity. And so I remember something that Anthony Reddy said to me at Oxford one time. He said, it's, it's a shame that we have to call it black theology because he's professor of black theology at Oxford. He said, when white people do it, it's just called theology. This question about particularity and context, we need to talk about it now because it matters and because it shapes the particular way that people see the world and, and see God and understand, uh, in my tradition at least, uh, Jesus, the cross, redemption, grace. But what Baldwin is leaning into, I think, by talking about this, and when I read that quotation, I was also a little shocked because I had always had this impression, just based on my conversations with gay friends, that, that Baldwin was this icon representing that. And he has given them that gift of saying, in my particularity, I feel seen. And I also can say, here is a saint that we can claim that we can claim as our own. And so I think that those are very real concerns for us at this moment. But when Baldwin talks about the new Jerusalem, what I believe he is talking about, and, and what he's talking about in his play that he was working on at the end of his life, The Welcome Table, I think he is asking the question, which is a very sort of Christian future question, what if none of those things mattered anymore? What if we no longer judged or hated or made assumptions about people based on what they look like or who they love or what, whatever sort of instances or particularity are a part of that? And so when Baldwin talks about the new Jerusalem, I think that what he is hoping for is after life with a whole lot of very particular particularities. He, Baldwin is our great black writer. He's our great gay writer. He's none of those things. He's a great writer. So what if we could move past that set of identity definitions and simply be human? And so I can't say exactly where Baldwin lands theologically at the end of his life. I do believe I preached uh, this at to Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas last fall on All Saints Day. I told those good people, most of whom were white, that if James Baldwin showed up in this space this morning, I think we would all recognize the Jesus within him. And so what I believe he is writing about there is that this is not our current set of circumstances and that we actually need that particularity right now. Uh, because it, it helps us in the same ways that it can hurt us. But when James Cone can talk out of his own particularity about here's how I understand Jesus and here's how I understand the cross, and I make this equation to the lynching tree because it helps me to understand where I am and what I've dealt with and what my ancestors have dealt with. And if you can't see this, well, that is not my problem. 
because this is where we come from and this is how we come at Jesus. So it's, I think, the two tensions there, where we are and where we want to be. And in theological terms, we typically talk about this in terms of kingdom of heaven, reign of God kind of stuff, the, the now and not yet. So Jesus came and he started this thing and it's not done. But we can see the trajectories. It's Martin Luther King's quote of the, the arc of the moral universe. Once we get down to that place where it bends back finally toward justice, that, I think that's what James Baldwin is talking about in both that welcome table metaphor and that dream of the New Jerusalem. Well, I'd now like to invite you to speak from your own particularity. You have written this book, and from the very first pages of the book, you are putting yourself in some physical extremity. You start the book by talking about a torturous bus ride up to a village where Baldwin spent some significant points in his life. And so I want to invite you now to talk to us about what was it that brought you to write this book. It's clear that you love Baldwin. It's clear that you love the message that Baldwin is giving us, but help to enflesh that for us a little bit, particularize that for us a bit. Tell us about your journey with this book. Thank you, David. I'm, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. Annie Lamott says that we get to choose our teachers. Some of them are alive, some of them are dead. And over the years, David, and I see you nodding here because we're on video, even though we're sending audio out to the world. I, I have found the people who have spoken to me living and dead, the people who helped me make sense of my life in its hardest moments, uh, the people who helped me make sense of joy and what that looked like and how I could experience it. And those teachers, the people we claim, Robert F. Kennedy, in the later stages of his life, when he was running for president, when he had gone through some kind of soul transformation, Dr. King, Thoreau, Anne Lamott, who I just mentioned, who is like one of my great guides on what it means to be a, a faithful artist. Baldwin has been, and I actually used this phrase in the book because I like it a lot, weighing down my backpack for many years now. Wherever I've gone on the planet, including on that torturous, terrifying ride up into the Swiss Alps to the village of Lucrabad, where, where Baldwin wrote on three and possibly four, I'm discovering, occasions. He has been a constant voice in my head, a constant set of words on the page who have helped me understand who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and the reason that I start the book the way that I do is that I am well aware of the sort of paradox that somebody who is in his particularity so different from my particularity should be such a wisdom guide for me. But that's also one of the things that great artists do. It's one of the things that great prophets do. I have very little in common probably with the prophet Jeremiah in terms of her particularities, but he still speaks to me, that temple sermon that he gives where he talks about, don't expect God to show up for you in this place. If you continue to mistreat the marginalized, if you continue to hate the poor, this is what God cares about, not the sacrifices and burnt offerings. If you continue to do that and not this, God's not going to be here. And Great prophets, great prophetic voices, great artists are the people who teach us what we need to know about how to be human. And Baldwin has been that person for me. In the classroom, I've had the amazing experience for 10 years of teaching him to a very diverse set of, of students at Baylor, 
I've written about him a lot, including in the book that I did for Oxford University Press in 2020 on race and American film, uh, because Baldwin is also a great film critic. And so what I would tell people and what I hope if they are not lovers of James Baldwin already, is that James Baldwin is one of those voices, is one of those figures in our history and in our literature who can be transformative for us. If we listen to him, if we're willing to accept the challenges that he poses, and they are big challenges, then we can be changed. And the job of the great artist, the job of the prophet is to say, here's what I see, and here's how I see God moving. Here's what it means to be fully human. Here's what it means to to live and to love justice. And so, end of the day, if someone said, I've been on BBC Radio a ton, and you use that, that lovely thing that they say about me. There's a famous show on BBC Radio, Desert Island Discs, where they ask, if you had to go on a desert island and you could only take five records with you there, that's an anachronistic thing, what would you take? And besides the Bible, I think like three of my five things would be David, James Baldwin. I'm going to read him for the rest of my life. He's going to read me for the rest of my life. And that's why I wanted to share this book and James Baldwin's insights with the world. Was there something in your research, because you say you've been teaching him for 10 years and you gestured in this direction as you were giving your answer a moment ago, that you said three, maybe possibly four things were written in this village up at the top of the mountain. But I'm wondering... Was there anything that you uncovered or discovered that surprised you, that gripped you, that really shifted the way that you thought about Baldwin in the, in the process of researching this book? I will tell you there is one thing, and this is coming back to particularity. I mentioned this in the book, and again, my biography is only important as it helps us to understand Baldwin. But I, I suffered from chronic serious depression that was life-threatening. And I had read the biographies of Baldwin, and there are tiny paragraphs about moments in Baldwin's life when he was in despair and maybe close to doing something radical. And, and I have been in those spaces as well. But when I was looking at some of the letters, there is an incredible amount of sadness and loneliness as he talks about his life, as he, he talks about not having someone to love. And, and I've experienced that. I've experienced that sadness, that depression. And I think about uh, in the biographies, this is not represented in the letters, but he, the biographers talk about one night in the south of France, he almost walked into the Mediterranean, never to be seen again. And, and in one of the letters to his agent, he talks about the loneliness of the long-distance swimmer. And for me, that was such a beautiful and painful phrase, describing what it's like to be alone and to recognize that this is not what you need or what you want. One of the things that I think has been most heartening for me is that Lucien Happersburg, who was Baldwin's great love, was at his side when he died. And their lives went in all sorts of different directions. Lucien married, had children. But at the end of his life, this person who he had loved, I think maybe more than anybody else on earth, was there to be with him in that transition. And there's a great line that I discovered in Harlem at the, the Schomburg Center in that play, The Welcome Table. There are two characters in the book. One of them has married, although they were formerly lovered, 
And, and the other one says to him, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you marry or how many children you have. At the end of my life, I'm going to call out for you. And I was just like, that's beautiful. That's the power of love. That's the power of connection. And that is hope and grace in this world. Whereas we were talking about earlier, there's so much disconnection and division. I, I think the greatest thing about the research that I did was that Baldwin became more Baldwin to me because of it. Thank you, first of all, for trusting us with a piece of your own journey. And I just want to acknowledge that's an act of trust with me and my listeners and that I'm grateful for it. The subtitle of your book, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity, we've talked about the comparisons to Jeremiah, the, the notion about Baldwin as a prophet, but you also talk about Baldwin as a saint. And it occurs to me, St. Genesius is the patron of actors. St. Barbara, strangely enough, is the patron saint of bomb squads. We can talk about St. Christopher, the, the patron of lost things. And so if we think about Baldwin as a saint, I want to invite you as our last question, what would Baldwin be the patron of? What would his patronage be? It's interesting. You can see behind me here, our, li our listeners, of course, cannot, but I've got a, a saint's candle uh, given to me by one of my students. And this describes St. James, the patron saint of poets, uncles, and exiles, which I actually think is not bad. I think if I had to, and you just asked me to, so I do, I would say if we're looking for James to be the patron saint of something, I would say travelers to be certain, because in this world and in his life, he was a person willing to do that thing, the interior journey and the external journey which always go together and influence each other. And then I think I would also say that I would like to think of him as the patron saint of lost souls because there is this powerful sense of lostness with many of his characters. It's described often in another country, which I think is my favorite Baldwin novel. But what he does is he represents for us this hope, this willingness to believe, and this courage to love that will pull us out of our lostness. And the two metaphors that we keep talking about, the, the New Jerusalem and the welcome table, are about being found. And, and that's what I understand and, and hope about faith and this faith journey that I'm on. Uh, it's what I believe that he understood about whatever faith journey he was on. And uh, so I, I like those maybe two characterizations the most, saint of travelers and the saint of lost souls. Well, Professor Greg Garrett, Longtime listeners will know that James Baldwin is one of my favorite writers. What I appreciated the most about your book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, is you took a writer that I know and love and showed me new depths, new dimensions, new aspects that I hadn't thought about. You made connections and made suggestions that set my mind on fire, and now I want to know more and more. It's the mark of a great book, even though your book is not it's not voluminous in terms of its words, but it is really amazing in terms of its depth. And I just want to thank you, first of all, for the amount of clearly time and care that went into the crafting of this book and researching this book. But I wanted to thank you especially for talking about it today with me and my listeners. Oh, David, you're so welcome. And, and thank you so much for those words. That The two people uh, that I'm hoping to talk to out in your audience, the person who knows and loves Baldwin and the person who has never heard of Baldwin, uh, I think both of those people will find something that will be of use 
in this book. And that's what we hope as writers is to be of use. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Greg Garrett. According to BBC Radio, he is one of America's essential voices on religion and culture. He is widely published in publications across the political spectrum. He is a professor of English at Baylor University and has been a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Center for Religion and Culture. He serves each summer as theologian in residence at American Cathedral in Paris. We've been speaking today about his recent book, The Gospel According to James Baldwin, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.